Hey everybody, it's Glenn Thrush with Politico's Off Message Podcast. We are on the eve of the big debate. This will be the most closely watched political event of 2016 until the next most closely watched political event of 2016. It is expected actually to draw Super Bowl numbers, MASH finale numbers, 80 to 100 million people. 75% of people who have been polled recently say they're going to watch this. And I got to tell you, I'm headed up to Hofstra, which is in my old stomping grounds in Long Island. I used to be a reporter for Newsday, the paper over there. And I would like nothing better than not to go. Watching a uh, debate from the actual debate hall is like, I used to say this about the White House, but it's like trying to watch a horse race from inside a horse. It is the worst place to kind of figure out what's going on. So we all go there because of the spin room so that we can walk up to all the staffers for the candidates and ask them questions. But I got to tell you, folks, mostly it just sucks. (laughs) So the main thing you do is talk to other reporters. So you sit around and you kind of ask them whether, whether they thought it went really, really well. Uh, and so essentially what, what it is is this big Petri dish of all the worst characteristics of modern media, of us telling each other what to think and having uh, an echo chamber. The last time I was at Hofstra for a big debate was in 2012. Let me set the scene for you. In early October 2012, Barack Obama debated uh, Mitt Romney in Denver and laid a big fat one right there on the stage. It was his uh, wedding anniversary. He was distracted. He was pissed off. I reported, uh, broke some news uh, that he had gotten into fights with John Kerry, who was playing Mitt Romney in debate prep. His head was in exactly the wrong place. So he totally screwed up. Romney surged in the polls, uh, moved ahead in a lot of the polls, just as Trump is kind of surging now. Uh, And so uh, Obama went down to Williamsburg, Virginia, immersed himself in debate prep, screwed his head on straight, and came out to Hofstra and killed Mitt Romney. And uh, that essentially set the stage for what was a pretty convincing uh, victory for Obama in 2012. Hillary Clinton obviously needs that kind of performance uh, on Monday night. But I have to tell you, and I'm working on a piece that talks about this right now, and then we'll get to our guest, Jennifer Palmieri, who's communications director for Hillary Clinton and uh, really one of the most experienced Democratic operatives in the party. But... um, I don't think this debate is about Hillary Clinton. It shouldn't be about Hillary Clinton. She is the most scrutinized public figure uh, of our day. We have a lot of information on Hillary Clinton. We've looked in her emails. We've seen everything. Now, granted, Julian Assange may drop some bombs on us and we may find out things that we don't already know. But the, the, at, the uh, uh, universe of information that we know about Hillary Clinton is exponentially larger than the stuff we know about Donald Trump. That's why I believe... Tomorrow night's debate ought to be a referendum on Donald Trump and his fitness to serve as president of the United States. Guy has not released his tax returns, so we do not know what his real business or charitable contributions were. The guy cannot and has not spoken with great specificity about the policies that he proposes. He's bounced around even on his, on his signature issue of immigration reform. And just as importantly... Uh, everyone we've uh, spoken to who know who knows him well, and I will refer you back to this great podcast we did earlier this year with Roger Stone, one of his longtime advisors. The guy doesn't read books, he doesn't read briefing papers, and he can't sit still to even be told the basic facts that he needs to know uh, in order to appear conversant on policy. So 
That's not to say he can't be president. Ronald Reagan was not was not exactly uh, Hillary Clinton when it came to studying the briefing books. So there are different ways to do this job. But I really do think we have moved from the stage of entertainment and spectacle to the Doris Kearns Goodwin part of the presidency. Can the dude do the job? Look, I'm not saying we know Hillary can, but I'm saying there's a lot more information out there in the public domain. This is a person who's steeped in policy. But I really think the true way to view this, uh, and this is not a partisan uh, position at all, this is just as a rational looking at this as a job interview perspective, uh, that we really should put all the pressure, most of the pressure on Donald Trump to prove that he is intellectually curious enough, competent, and engaged enough to be president of the United States. That said, our guest today is uh, Jennifer Palmieri, uh, who I've known for quite some time. She has served in a variety of roles. I first met her when she was working for uh, John Edwards. And one of the really interesting parts of this uh, podcast, the part that I like best, was her talking about uh, the friendship that she developed with Elizabeth Edwards, the late Elizabeth Edwards, the candidate's wife. Uh, and Paul Mary, this was not a casual friendship. Paul Mary was essentially with Elizabeth Edwards when she died in 2010. And I really first became uh, friendly with Paul Mary when she was working uh, in the White House around this time. And I will never forget, and, we, and there's a long section of this interview that talks about this, running into her the day after she had to testify in John Edwards' uh, fraud trial, uh, where she talked incredibly poignantly about uh, Elizabeth Edwards' last days. Uh, in general, though, I think what comes across here is the mindset at this moment uh, in Brooklyn, in Hillary Clinton's headquarters, they are both confident and entirely freaked out, <laughs> which seems to be the perpetual democratic state of mind. Okay, down to our usual business. Please follow us on iTunes uh, and rate us. And as usual, keep the uh, notes, letters, criticisms, uh, guest suggestions coming to me at gthrush at politico.com. Without further ado, Jen Palmieri. So I'm sitting next to Jen Palmieri in the headquarters here in Brooklyn, and she is sitting against uh, a map, and her head right now is in Texas. <laughs> Because I'm ever optimistic. Yeah, do you feel Someday. like? I don't think you can, I don't think that one's going to work out for you. I don't think in this game. I don't think in this cycle. Not in this cycle, but you're not. But it's not too far from Arizona. One one hop skip over. Um, or Georgia. Or Georgia. Um, uh, let me just ask you a general question before we get into you. Um, we are speaking 48 hours before the first debate. Uh, we have seen. Uh, not a great month on the polls. We have, I think, in the last couple of days, it seems to have bounced back. Where do you guys uh, stand right now? Do you feel as if uh, you are in as good a position as you were coming into the fall? I think we uh, just about are. I think that we had coming out of the we had a, a tremendous convention, and then I, and then Trump had a few bad weeks because he just got into a con death spiral. And so we were probably artificially high for a while. We came back down to earth. This feels, you know, what you see in national polls now um, feels about feels about right. That three to four ish kind of that range, five to six ish. I mean, I've seen everything from eight to eight to four, but right. it feels a little. It this feels to me about where it should be, and um, I think that. You know, as as my friend David Pluff would say, I'd rather be us than them. 
and they're the ones that have to change something. They're the ones that have to break the dynamic and make it go into a different direction. That's hard to do. Um, this race, in in particular, it's so you have two candidates that are so divergent from each other. I think it's very hard to. Um, outside factors don't seem to matter the way they might in another race. What do you um, mean by that? So terrorism, for example, last week we had you know these attacks in New Jersey and New York. And I think in a race that not necessarily isn't closer in terms of the numbers, but closer in terms of the candidates being um, uh, more uh, more similar or closer to each other on the issues are certainly you know temperament and demeanor and the way they and the way they you know speak that uh, I think something like that terrorist uh, incident could have had an impact on the race. That's interesting. And I really don't think I don't think people are so focused on these two personalities. Well, I think because because if you had, I think, you know, my view is that, you know, Donald Trump is a, I mean, I I don't just think that he's a, uh, I don't agree with his tax policy. I think that he would, I think he poses an existential threat to the republic. I I really believe that. I believe that if he were president, uh, he wouldn't treat the Constitution with care, I think. Um, I believe that he would put us in grave uh, national security threat. He truly is somebody who's baited by a um, by a tweet. So I think that so it, it is not as if Mitt Romney and Barack Obama are running, where Mitt Romney and Barack Obama have a difference of opinion on how you approach um, uh, national security in an incident. Uh, a t- you know, a terrorist incident and that race could have had a, more of an impact because then you, you're you looking to see how each one parries that um, issue and see if you can glean something more about the two of them from that. And this race just isn't... It's so interesting. It just isn't like that. And so I have, yeah, I've, I've relatively recently come to this uh, conclusion myself and because you're always looking at the horizon, oh, there's job numbers come out. Is that going to be something that's going to help us or hurt us? Or is that? And it, this race is just not... It's just not like this, and I, I think that why we're because still, are we sort of- I, I think we're still I think and I've you know I've adjusted my thinking along the way, but I'm a little deeper into it than most people. I think we're still looking at this race with the expectations of what we thought it would be 15 months ago, which is like, oh, can Hillary Clinton pull off a third term? She's got all this stuff that hangs right. around her. Can she? Uh, can the Republicans uh, pick somebody uh, that might uh, be able to take advantage and, and beat her? And you know, is the economy strong enough to uh, to 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 for voters to pick a Democrat for a third time? And that's not at all what this race is about. This race is truly about it's a reckoning. It is truly about um, what kind of America we're going to live in. And I think this reckoning has been a long time coming. And it's about it's because of globalization. It's because of economic changes. It's because of demographic changes. And if you look back at history, you see this kind of reckoning, this kind of, you know, roiling to the surface happens um, maybe a few years after a traumatic event. It doesn't happen right after the recession. Well, that's I think if you kind of look at like uh, not to get all historical, (laughs) but if you kind of look at what happened in 1896 with William Jennings Bryan and all the economic dislocation that occurred in the early part of the 20th century. And then you started seeing the seismic elections coming several years later. Uh, culminating with sort of Wilson in twenty in in nineteen twelve, so so th- these things turned into real political movements after the American people took kind of the, the stew pot boiled a little bit, right? Yeah. So yeah. that it's it's a, it's that you know, and I think for us that that catastrophe was the Great Recession, and 
things are getting better, but they're not getting better for everyone. Right. And there is there is truly a pocket. And you know, I went to high school with some of these guys. Like I know these people. Um, uh, you know, so there are white middle aged guys that didn't go to college that uh, they don't feel like there is an opportunity for them, and right. you know, they're not wrong. So I um, I remember early in the cycle you sending me. Uh, I think when we were just talking about the state of the race, you sent me a clip from the Times, which, uh, you know, there's been a ton of academic research. Right. My editor and I, Susan Glasser, did a roundtable on this, uh, but sort of about decline in white male life expectancy and sort yes. of what that said about. I mean, there's not, I don't think there's one um, stat uh, in, that Hillary Clinton has seen in this, uh, in the, you know, almost two years I've worked for her, that has had more of an impact on her. That just, that was a real blow that there's a population in this country whose mortality rate is rising. That hasn't happened in America in a really long time. And it's white middle-aged people. And that just, you know, and it's about, you know, I'm sure it's a lot of factors, but it's about economic dislocation. It's about um, substance abuse and, and suicides. And so but why can't, I, I, guess, I think that that is, that's what this race is really So it must be tremendously fr- frustrating that you can't get to those people. I mean, I, 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 I know. know. Yeah. I think that this is what I believe. I, I, I think that uh, the way Hillary Clinton approaches problems and she sees a problem in front of her and she wants to tackle that, she believes that uh, it frustrates her, really frustrates her to particularly, we spent some time in Appalachia, to see these regions just going to uh, rust and people not being utilized, a bunch of talent on the sidelines, like, that really bothers her. And I think whether whether or not these people are going to vote for her, they are going to be a focus of hers. And um, I don't think we're not going to move them because they're part of America. It's like, we got to deal. I'm, I'm gesturing to Appalachia. Right. That is a part of America. We can't just let that place sit and rot. So that will be a focus of hers. And I don't think we're going to convince those people in this campaign, nor is it a you know strategic goal of this campaign to bring those voters around, but they are going to be um, a focus for hers. But I mean, to go back to the original concept, I think that that is why things, that's why I don't think outside factors matter that much. I think this is really about... It's an existential race. It is an existential race. And I believe that we are going to win. And there are things that uh, we're... think There are things that we are doing better. There are things that we could do better. There's more work that we need to do. But I believe that... Um, I believe that she will win. Uh, and if we don't, it's because America is not the country I thought that it was. Wow, that's a pretty... Which is really scary. Yeah. It's really scary. In terms, let's talk a little bit, you, you mentioned uh, people you grew up with. Where are you from? What did you folks do? Uh, I was born in Pascagoula, Mississippi. I uh, lived there a couple times. My dad was in the Navy, so we lived in Mississippi and South Carolina until I was 11, and then I moved to California. Went to uh, you know high school there in the Monterey Bay area. Nice. Beautiful, a lot of surfing. <laughs> you could surf for credit at my high school. Class. Did you actually do that? I did not do that. You, I swam for credit. I did not surf for. But credit. you did not surf for surf for credit. Um, what? what did, uh, so your dad was in the navy. What did he do? Yes, uh, he was a nuclear engineer. His last he was at um, his last job was uh, he was shipyard commander at Mare Island Naval Shipyard, which is in wow. Vallejo. It's beautiful. Uh, uh, beautiful place. So that's how we um, that's how we ended up in in California. My dad was a Republican. Um, my mom my mom was mostly a Republican, although she voted for McGovern over Nixon. She was real proud of that. She also did, however, work for Trent Lott. Your mother and worked for is, Trent Lott. So we were living in Pascagoula, which right. is you know Trent Lott's hometown. And there was a special election. I think Bill Colmer was a Democratic congressman. Right. 
Trent Lott was his chief of staff. He died in office, if I remember my facts right, and Trent Lott ran for in a special election. And one of our closest family friends was the campaign manager. And so my no mother kidding. my mother ran the volunteer operation. And uh, out of campaign headquarters, which of course was a double-wide trailer in the Rexall drugstore parking lot, yeah. Google Rexall. Pascagoula, Rexall Drugstore, and Jackie Combs. And there's an amazing story. Oh, Jackie wrote that. Yeah. Um, no, not about me, about uh, Trent Lott, because Trent would always use this as a, well, when I'm down at the Rexall Drugstore getting a soda, um, I'll tell you, people, people in Pascagoula are worried about the death tax. And, you know, Jackie's like, no, they, they are. are not. Um, but uh, so there are some great photos of me with Trent Lott and my <laughs> Trent Lott for Congress bill, sandwich billboard at Halloween well, time. When did you make your convert? Well, first, uh, uh, so, yeah. but my dad did vote for Bill Clinton, and that is when I knew Bill Clinton was going to win in 1992. When my father, who'd been voted Republican all his life, right. said, told me he was voting for him, and I, Leon Panetta was my congressman, so I was really lucky that way. Uh, and I interned for him in college, went to American University, interned for Leon. And that is, that's when I became a Democrat, you know, I just, and the way I see it is, you know, the, just like people, you know, Leon's, Leon's like Hillary, this, and this is, I think, why he's become such an ally of hers. You get in the trenches, you fight every day for what you think uh, is right to try to make some progress for people. And, you know, there's like, there are rule, I, I once wrote for somebody, five rules that I've learned from Leon Panetta, and, uh, uh, one of the best ones is take what you can get and come back for more, which really uh, is a guiding uh, principle for me in any kind of negotiation. You know, some people are saying like, "Oh, you should hold out, don't and take what you get, come back for more. Take what you get, come back for more." And that's and uh, that's very Hillary. It's very Hillary too. Yes, very Hillary. Very Hillary in yeah. terms of the way she's worked on issues. Um, it, I guess the welfare reform act would be a, a, a big example of that. Yes, that's as for Leon too. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, uh, I want to move you fairly quickly through the through the biography. But one of the things that one of the ways I think I first got to know you was when you were working for the Edwards campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, and you became, I think, very well known for being really close to Elizabeth Edwards. Tell me about uh, when you first met her and what your relationship was like with <laughs> yeah, her. Yeah, I first met Elizabeth. I, we have a similar background, Italian, group of Navy families. Um, and I met her. I went to their house to do a job interview, and she greeted me at the door. And uh, she had a Diet Coke in a one hand and a yogurt in the other. And she said, do you want either one of these are the only things I have in the house, I'm going to lose 40 pounds. <laughs> and so <laughs> this is how she greeted me. Uh, and, you know, so I loved her immediately. And, you know, part of my calculation in working for John was like, well, she seems awesome. So, and there's just, you know, she, I don't, I don't, I've never met somebody that's as full of life as Elizabeth was and up in everybody's business as Elizabeth was and as much of a know-it-all in, the, in a wonderful way like she really lived life she really thought about every choice that she made in her life and what that what she had learned and how she could pass it on to somebody else and I think some people probably found that annoying um but uh she uh I I just found her credible and she you know I just learned a lot particularly having lost her son um, How long after she lost her son did you start working So Wade died in 1996 and yeah. I started working for them in 2003 and, and at that, that was, point, they'd already had Emma Claire and Jack. And it was still, a, but, but it was still a heavy presence. Very defining, you know, very defining. And I think what it was so courageous and inspiring about how she handled that was, you know, she says, so we just, after, after they kind of came out of their stupor, 
uh, she and John saying like, what brings us joy? What brings us joy? How are we going to get joy back into our life? You know, she was like determined. She knew, you know, she just determined she would not accept that she couldn't bring joy back into her life. And, um, uh, and kids, you know, that's, that's what did in the head Jack and Emma Claire. And that is something I really learned from her. She had painted, uh, stenciled in her kitchen, mm-hmm. Uh, in Chapel Hill, uh, it's from a Leonard Cohen song. Uh, you will love this. If you, I'm sure you know it. Uh, ring the bells that still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets through. And that's like how she. Um, that's how she. But she was she was sort of misunderstood, right? <laughs> I mean, people yeah. <laughs> she, because she she had. I mean, she she had a really hard edge. She was enormously, talk about her intellect. She was an enormously <laughs> so, bright woman, right? Crazy smart, crazy, crazy smart. And I think that would frustrate her because she'd see like, why can't everybody see this? And Elizabeth, no one sees that. <laughs> no one but you sees that. And I think a problem was that she, if she was a staff person or a strategist, it would have been fine because she had a lot of good ideas. She had some good ideas that were just crazy. Right. And But can coming you, from the, can, can I name Of course, some? can you give me an example? <laughs> like, I can't remember Although she, but she had her finger on the edge. She was the first person that raised outsourcing with me, for example. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, outsourcing, they're taking these jobs and they're sending them overseas. And, you know, she's, um, she was like way ahead of the curve on the digital side. Um, She, you know, there were, there were, when when she passed, there were several Twitter accounts that, you know, went dead that we will, you know, that we will never know. Because she names was were. tweeting under different right, names right, right. and all that. That's great. Uh, but I think in a – the problem was she was the spouse. So that, you know, if she was a staff person that you could argue back with or disagree with, and, I, and like, I felt like I could. I would argue back with her and disagree with her. And um, uh, But because she was the spouse, it was sort of taken as edicts, and that was just really difficult. And I just I just knew – we had a good relationship. We had a good rapport. I, I – I, um, you know, I understood her, and I think I could, you know, as a good uh, sort of mediator between the uh, uh, staff and her. But she, but so grateful that uh, she was a big part of my life. And uh, yeah, just and and that like I'm still friends with Kate, her daughter, who's wonderful. Just had a little boy named Wade uh, a couple months ago, uh, living in San Diego with her husband, and. Um, yeah, just like so. That was all hard, really hard. Plus, when people saw bad behavior from Elizabeth, such as it was, yeah, you know, it was during some of like the worst days of her whole life. So, you know, when the spotlight tough. was, yeah, the whole thing, you know, the whole thing with John, and then just cancer comes back, and you know, well, it's terrible. I don't want to, I don't want to reduce you to, I don't want to <sighs> knock you off of what is yeah. an otherwise sunny day here in Brooklyn. But I just the one last question on that. So, just tell me a little bit about what it was like. Um, because you were with her quite a bit, right, towards the end. Yes, it was. And I have a, I have a Hillary and Elizabeth story, too, which is I was there. I went down um, in 2008. John did his terrible interview with Nightline, and um, I um, uh, where he said he had an affair with Riel, but the baby wasn't his. Mm-hmm. It was terrible. Anyway, um, after the interview... Uh, we tipped at the house, and then the news broke, and people were calling the house, and the phone rang, and I answered the phone, and this is at their home, and this voice said, hello, it's Hillary Clinton calling, and I burst into tears. <laughs> it's, you know, it's like your mom calling. Like, I was like, Hillary, it's Jennifer Palmieri, and it's like, you know, it's like, you, like, hold it all together, and then, like, you hear, like, your mom's voice, and I was like, I know you know how terrible this all is, and, you know, um, 
and I was like, so do you can't talk to Elizabeth because she and Elizabeth had become friendly, which was very gracious on, Elizabeth, on Hillary's part because Elizabeth's not always so gracious to um, Hillary right. um, early on. Right. Although Said they became really good friends, which I was really, really happy about. Um, and she said, I'm calling to talk to Elizabeth, but I'm calling to talk to John. And two. So we put John on the phone first and she gave him a little buck up. Um, and then she talked to Elizabeth. I mean, this was after the real stuff came out. Yes. Wow. This is the story. This is when ABC did an interview with John and said, he said, you know, he was lying. He said, I had an affair, but that baby's not mine. Right, right. So anyway, uh, this is right before the Democratic convention in Denver. And then I went to the Democratic convention and I ran into Hillary who was doing a walkthrough. Right. Um, and uh, she pulled me aside and she's like, how's Elizabeth? What's going on? I keep calling her cell phone, leave her messages. She's not calling me back. It's fine. I just want to make sure that she knows I'm trying to reach out to her. And I was like... How great is that? You know, like not. Any- well, she she was too sick at that point in time. Right? No, she just wasn't. This is this was before she got really sick, but she was just, um, she just was not. You know, Hillary just like I mean, excuse me, Elizabeth just kind of went into a little bit of a. She was not in the headspace to be talking not in the headspace to be talking to people, but I don't know. It just made an impression on me because the wait, Denver wait. the Denver convention was not an easy time for Hillary Clinton probably either for her to <laughs> but, for her to be mentioning but somebody. to be but to be you know focused on Elizabeth like that and when Elizabeth I was there uh, the week that Elizabeth uh, died and um, it was uh, you know I you know like anybody said who's been through this it was a really difficult but also sort of um, you know mystical important time actually grateful to have been there and uh, Hillary wrote a really lovely note uh, that we read to her uh, and Kate, Kate and Chelsea are the same age so they had like a bonding there too what was it uh, you've, you've written about this but I mean what was it like at the at, at the end did she do you think she really did she achieve peace her life was things were it's one thing to have this illness and, and have everything yep. going okay around you it's another thing to, have, to be in this do you think she really at the very end got a sense of peace it did feel that way. It did feel that way to me. I think that in the last, you know, she had separated from her husband in the last year of her life. Um, you know, there were, uh, there were even a couple of men that she would, uh, gentlemen friends that she had in the last year of her life. And uh, able to see her daughter get engaged, not married, but engaged. And uh, I think that she saw a, you know, some kind of path. Uh, if if she were to live. But she also, you know, she also knew that if she did die, uh, you know, she believed that she would be with Wade. And that was something that helped her too. (laughs) Take a drink of water. (laughs) Take a drink of water too. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, what did Hillary say? So anyway. So on that phone call, what did Hillary say? After after she bucks up uh, John and, and he has uh, she talked to Elizabeth. I know. She talked to Elizabeth for a long time. Um, I don't know. She talked to John. She talked to John brief, relatively briefly, but just, you know, like, you know, hang in there, buck up, like, you know, get your whole life still. And um, uh, and uh, and she was just really, uh, yeah, so she's just very supportive and gracious of Hillary. But this is like, I mean, of Elizabeth, this is, right, this is what everybody says. Everybody's had their... Uh, who's worked for her, friends with her, has her moment where like something like this happens. Well, Hillary, you mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that you were, you know, you obviously worked in the in the Clinton White House, and then you helped out Obama at a time when he was really not doing well when you and Podesta came over there, and things turned around quite a bit. Um, one of the things, um, the, I mean, this campaign is not a fun campaign. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's just from my perspective and from talking with everybody, it's just really not... This is not a joyous, uh, uh, a joyous light coming from the heavens kind of campaign, is it? It is. People say, is it grueling? It's you know, it is harrowing. 
What do you mean by that? It is a harrowing experience. It is because it is, there's so much on the line. I mean, you really feel, I thought that, and I feel foolish saying that I didn't expect the, can't this election cycle to be what it is, right? right? You're like, oh, I must not be very good at this politics <laughs> if I didn't see that. But I feel like nobody saw it. And I'm sure in retrospect, we will say, well, of course that was going to happen right. in 2016. Um, so it is, um, you know, uh, this, you know, running a uh, campaign for a candidate who's been, you know, in the public life for 40 years and has all this stuff. Um, uh, that's, you know, that's has its challenges. But moreover, it's the uh, running against something like Donald Trump is really uh, scary because of what I think the threat that he is. And um, there's nothing out of bounds. There's nothing uh, he, you know, 70 percent of the claims he makes people say are lies. It's just a very hard thing to do. And he says terrible things about her every day that you got to, you know, figure out the best way to um, beat back very skeptical public. You know, you just see this reckoning happening everywhere. I think Black Lives Matter is a part of that. You know, it's, it's gone to the NFL now. It's like this is this is going to happen in all parts of our uh, spheres. Do you see this society, as a coming? It is, I mean, do you see this as a coming apart or do you think that there's... I can't, I can't believe that. I have to believe that I think that this is a reckoning. So this has been building and we need to have this out. And I just think that America is... It's not going to do this. America is not going to side uh, with the people that think... Our best days are behind us. That's not going to side with the people that think we pit people against each other. Um, even if they believe at their core, which I think some of these people um, uh, uh, do, that you know, ultimately uh, Trump would make things better. I think some of those people, you know, his supporters believe that. But I just, I, I don't believe that's what America is. And I think that, so I think we have to have this out. And then I think we'll... Don't laugh. I think then we'll be stronger together. I think that we need to. Uh, but I just like look around, even at this ca- this campaign, and you see it's incredibly young. It's incredibly diverse. It's that's you know that's how I see America. In, okay, so in terms of the candidate that you're working for, obviously you mentioned I like the word stuff. 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 There's stuff that hangs around. Um. So look, she has done things to herself that you may disagree with this characterization, I expect you will, uh-huh. that I, as an interested outsider, view as serially self-destructive in the interest of self-protection. So we have the email server, which was clearly done to sort of protect herself from the kind of public scrutiny that it has paradoxically invited. Is she, is she a candidate uh, that hurts herself by trying to help herself? I uh, not surprise you or your listeners that I'm not going to say bad things about my boss, nor would I, <laughs> nor do I need to, because I, because I don't believe them. But this is what I've thought a lot about this stuff, and this is what I think. She, um, I believe that she has been a generationally challenging figure from the very first time she came onto the national scene, which is when she gave that commencement in Wellesley. And hitting from, uh, hitting Senator Edmund Brooke, hitting Senator Edmund Brooke, and from what right. I can discern, uh, the speech itself wasn't what really broke through. It was right. her challenging the senator that had spoken before right. her, and she's this young woman, black Republican senator, black from Massachusetts. Republican senator from Massachusetts. Um, she's this, you know, she's a young woman, baby boomer generation, you know, the early part of that uh, that stood up to this. Um, 
And so that's how she's that's when, you know, we first, you know, see her. And then the next time it's as Bill Clinton's wife in um, and she even when she was when he was a candidate, she was obviously going to be she was a first candidate's wife that had her own career that was very opinionated. I mean, a lot. She and Elizabeth have a lot of similarities, a lot, you know, about the same age, both lawyers, both, you know, met their husbands in law school um, and. She uh, and that was really challenging. She's like, and and um, uh, and you know, like a lot of women of that generation, she was pretty fearless. And I think that that I, I've gone back uh, recently and looked at interviews from 90, the '92 campaign, and it's all the same. It's amazing. How so? People on the street. What do you think, Hillary Clinton? I don't know. There's just something about her I don't like. Really? Really? You know, I just don't trust her. See, I mean, really, it is. It's. The same because the trust thing took it's, a no, okay, take the, a trust hiatus. Thing, the trust thing ebbs and flows, right? But it is so you um, think it's uh, you think this is I think so. I think there's two things. I think there's two things. I think there's that, right? So and now, what is that? I've, because generationally challenging, right. like just just like in people's fate, you know, just like as a breaking woman. as a as a woman as a baby boomer, you know, just breaking with all right. of these traditions. And now it's generationally challenging because, you know, she's somebody in her 60s um, and she's facing the challenge in the other direction with, you know, uh, young women that are millennials. Right, who and somehow think that there's already been a woman president, some of these people. Yeah, although I think that we, I, I feel like we're, I feel that this connection that we need to make with millennials is, 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 is being made. And what I see, you know, I'm in my 40s and I... You know, my generation, we don't have anything in common with Hillary Clinton's generation, right? Like, we grew up in the Reagan years. We, like, we're didn't. We're the same age, yes. We didn't, you know, <laughs> we're not into, uh, we weren't, like, protesting. We weren't, didn't have, you know, all of that. Um, we don't like Elton John. <laughs> we didn't. So we were just weren't part of that, you know, the whole 60s experience. I feel like the young women who, particularly the ones that like care a lot about politics, like they're a lot like Hillary Clinton was when she was in her twenties, right. and uh, and she's having to make that you know connection. Um, so there's that. Then the other thing is she's a person who is running for president who does not like to be the center of attention. <laughs> Process that. How does that work? It's true. Well, she she's, did the zone of privacy. The thing that she, she said in '92 was the zone of like privacy. Like to you know, she doesn't care. Doesn't need to be the center of attention, and so that. So I think those two proce- things combined. Okay, but let's process that for a second. I mean, that is—is is that a genderized characteristic? I mean, is that no, read as so. gender? No, you I think, don't think so. You think that is? Right, I think that's just. just who I think she that's is. just who she is. I think that's just who she is. So I think those two—you you combine those two factors and. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the I think her I think most of this is attributed to just you know she's just there's no one you can't compare her um, there she, she doesn't have a um, appear in the sense of someone like somebody similar to her. Well, no, her. she's sui generis. There's nobody who has occupied the space that she so has. You can't, so there's not, there's just no frame of reference for us. And so everything is projected onto her, right. the person that is Hillary Clinton, not all of the change and challenge that she represents. But there's also, and a, I person, just think, there's also a person, Hillary Clinton, who has done some things that people, uh, that people have questioned. And the other thing about- I mean, about, it's just not any, you know, the, 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 the reaction- is so off scale as to be incomprehensible. 
But in ter- okay, so in terms of, but let's talk about the press situation, okay? My uh, sister from another Mr. Maggie Haberman, who made a <laughs> ill-advised decision to go work for another publication, <laughs> whose name I will omit from this podcast. Uh, Although did a really wonderful endorsement of Hillary Clinton today. Oh, that was, I don't think, I don't think, for the record, I don't think Maggie had anything to do that with that. That is true, she did not. That's right. But we did a story, I don't know, a year and a half ago, two years ago, talking about Hillary uh, and the press, and there's a, a quote that's become kind of famous, which is just, she hates you, just get used to that, right? Your reputation in the White House and on the campaign has been someone internally, from my reporting, who has pushed for more access and is somebody who wants her to be out there and feels that she does better when she's out there more. Talk to me what that talk to me about what that challenge is. Is she reluctant to to engage with the press? And and how do you kind of get work that situation out? Um uh there's skepticism. You know, there's a there's a healthy degree of skepticism, um, and uh, uh, that she and I both share, given her experience. And I, uh, and I think that that is understandable. And the in the last month, I feel like we've had you know we've had a good run with the press and. The, uh, you know, and I'm, I, you know, I'm happier that way. It makes, uh, I'm, I, I think the more the press understand what you're trying to, the more built in they are to your operation, uh, the better they understand what you're trying to do. And the, and that's going to result in better coverage for both right. sides because people are going to be more informed. And that is why I think having the press with you is good. And that's why I think having the press uh, actually work at the White House. I remember when the Obama team came into the White House and they were thinking, wow, the press are going to work. And I said, oh, it's, tell me, trust me, it's, it's, you'll have the best relations that you have with the press because they're right there. They're, you know, it makes you be more human. You're going to see that person. That is the next, right. They really, I You're recall. going to see that person yep. next, yep. <laughs> the next morning. Uh, so it, and they just, I just, I'm a big believer in having people, uh, if they understand what you're trying to do, they're just, it's just going to, you know, like then everybody's going to be able to do their jobs better. But do you think that the the way she has been covered, you guys are obviously pushing the false equivalents. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's the, it is the thing I worry the most about um, that uh, could impact the election, which is grading him on a curve and and then the false equivalency. I think the press are struggling with how to deal with this too. The grading him on a curve is particularly challenging because I think, you know, you look at her and you say, okay, she's put, she's got this record. She's got, she's got a, she's got this policy record. She has all these things that she wants to do. She has all this experience. Therefore, we can ask her and her staff, you know, a myriad of questions on serious substantive topics, and we can hold her accountable uh, on that front. And then you look at Donald Trump and his staff, and you're like, what am I going to ask these people? Because there's not, um, and I think that they, 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 they. Uh, they uh, adjust their questions to fit the experience and what that candidate has put forward in terms of policy, and that you cannot do that. So it's like, I was going to make I was going to make an offensive uh, comparison, but I'm not going to do that. But so in terms of the debate, which is really what this comes down to, I've been making this argument for a while. I think that you know I heard Chris Wallace say that he doesn't intend to do fact checking. Bob Schieffer wrote an op-ed piece. I love Bob Schieffer, but this is Maginot Line thinking that you just need to be the arbitrary <laughs> referee. Uh, do you want to see these uh, guys essentially give uh, Trump a civics test to see what the hell he actually knows about the country? I think you need to ask him. Yes, I do. I mean, I think that I think you have to judge them. I think you have to judge them on their knowledge as well as their plans. 
and the record. So it seems like those are the sort of the three the three lanes. And I know they're reluctant to fact check, but you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm reluctant to have to deal with a lot of things I have to deal with in 2016. Like, welcome to 2016. And would you be cool with it? Because uh, my uh, one of my friends asked the debate. I think it was Mike Calderon from the Huffington Post actually asked the debate commission whether or not it'd be, uh, you know, a, a part of the agreed upon rules to run a Chiron, a fact checking mm-hmm. Chiron. Yeah, I would love that. We would you love would that. love that. Yeah, we would love that. We would love that because we do really well. Uh, by by um, you know fact checking standards, we're right you know we're right there with Obama and Romney are actually way better than Romney, but right there with how with uh, Obama was judged in eight and twelve, and he ju- it's 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 again it's sort of hard to process, but seventy per- this is politifact seventy percent of the claims that he makes are false, and when when and she's 70, in the third, well, she's like in the twenty eight thirty she's like twenty seven twenty eight yeah that. right so. Which is very low. I mean, there's there's a chart. She's like at the very bottom of it. Right. When you like compare all of the other all and half of them are on the emails of the other <laughs> candidates, all of them. She's at the bottom. She has very few on. Pol- I will say this: she has very few uh, Politifact false, mostly false pants on fire stuff on policy. They mm-hmm. tend to be on more of the process stuff in the emails. So, uh, yeah. thank you for pointing that out, Glenn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think so. If that's your dynamic. To not, if you have somebody up there who's seventy percent of the time, of the time, the claims that he's making are not true. To not call him out is to give him an extraordinarily unfair advantage. It is to be biased in his favor. Well, she like, that is their. I don't like the moderates are to hear us. That is their reality. Right. Will you? Sh- will you? Will you hear her say? I know. Look, er, you know, debate prep is like the nuclear codes. It's ridiculous. I know. Uh, do Do you foresee her turning to Lester Holt and saying, "I remember there was that great moment in the in the '08 debates, probably not great for her campaign, where she <laughs> turned and she invoked that Saturday Night Live skit where the moderators were giving Obama pillows and would you <laughs> a question for you, Senator Obama? Would you like a cool drink? You know, like, um, do, do you foresee a moment where she turns and says, "Lester, I think we need to." We maybe need to make sure that this guy knows what the nuclear triad is, or uh, that, or that, uh, that's a good idea. or that the Russians have in fact annexed the Crimea. <laughs> um, I would. We gotta let this debate happen organically. No one will ruin all of the. Oh, it'll be so organic. It'll be so organic. It's like yeah, the right. Whole Foods of debates. <laughs> yeah, you guys are real, totally chill. It's a really this. organic setting. Super fun. Speaking yeah. of organic, uh, yeah. Philippe is uh, <laughs> Philippe. <laughs> so obvious, such an obvious choice. Man, I chased that thing, and I know you did, you guys, and I, I lost. I lost to Ma- the aforementioned Maggie Haberman. You on lost that story. to a very worthy opponent. Though. That's like she's a very worthy. Fellow. That's being. Not, I feel like I'm. I'm the guy right after the, the fat guy behind Hussein Bolt. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I mean, no. Uh, but to be fair, there was one other. There was one other correspondent who thought that this uh, uh, had this, but didn't have it as solid as Maggie. And and for the record, we didn't help anybody with it. So well, I know that. Fact. I caught wind of it a little late. The um, uh, but before it was actually published, I should say. <laughs> uh, in terms of the um, in terms of the debate prep, I know you guys don't want to talk a lot about it. Um, and you've talked, I think, about kind of dealing with the two Trumps. Yeah. Do you think? Uh, do you think he's going to be able to restrain himself and stay teleprompter for this whole thing? I do. You do think he's going to be able to be disciplined? 
do uh, he hasn't had to do he hasn't had to do 90 minutes right uh on, he's, he's never done one-on-one right. um so 90 minutes i mean i, I think they probably had they've had debates that were long that long right. but uh that's 45 minutes you know of him speaking and that's that's a lot but you know he has since um i think that his He's sort of stabilized after, um, you know, he went through his little right. death spiral after our convention. Right. And then he stabilized and he has, um, you know, I, you know, he, he, he is, he's, he still believes all of the terrible things that he, that we have established that he believes and he is a grave threat. Um, but he seems to have been able to rein himself in a little more. But that, you know, our point is, that shouldn't be the bar, you know. Just because he's able to get through a debate not without becoming unhinged, right. <laughs> doesn't mean wow, Donald Trump had a great debate. You need this is the this is it. This is the real thing. This isn't you know a forum. This isn't a um, primary. This is the person who is representing the Republican Party trying to be president of the United States, and uh, he needs to be held to. Uh, I think you know voters should expect that he has plans, he has answers, he has he has knowledge, and he can show that he has the judgment. And it's not a show anymore. So that's what you know. We're hoping that's what we want voters to be looking. So for. you feel so. So you feel of those two scenarios, the more likely one is that for most of this debate, he will be a fairly disciplined. I think that I imagine that the person who will show up is the same person who showed up in the commander in chief forum uh, that NBC did a few weeks ago. So that person was, um, you know, relatively was relatively disciplined. He said things in the course of that half hour that were very concerning and, you know, damaging about, you know, uh, saying that uh, he wants to fire all the generals, you know, can only be his generals, that, um, you know, has more respect for Vladimir Putin than the President of the United States. Um, But, uh, you know, in his his performance, his demeanor was uh, not unhinged. Uh, But... Will she try to get him? Do you think if he does that, she'll try to remind him of the way he used to be? I don't like, again. Like I just we didn't seem to let the debate happen. Of course, we'll let the debate happen, but we get you know we have air to fill here. <laughs> damn it! A couple more questions. I'll let you go. Um, so so again, kind of dealing with the debate. Um, my reporting has uh, has sort of shown that one of the things that the concern is obviously is framing answers uh, in a way that 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 makes the implicit case uh, that trust is a comparative thing. That trust isn't, it's not a referendum on Hillary Clinton's trust. It has to do with the comparison, the side-by-side of these two people in terms of trustworthiness, right? Um, how do you do that? How do you sort of, how do you sort of make the case that she is trustworthy uh, in the context of a debate stage while you're trying to go after this guy? We believe she's trustworthy. We believe that she has more than proven that. <laughs> oh, I have my headline. <laughs> that it is a fact that he is a liar. He is a. He is. He. It is. Oh, I felt you were about to say something really I good. was. <laughs> uh, you know, if he's if he's making a claim, it is there's a seventy percent chance it's false. I mean, he is so. You want to talk about a f- about false equivalency? I mean, this there's no greater example uh, uh, than the than the issue of trust. And I think you've seen her um, talk about this in the last few months. She knows that people have doubts. 
she wants people to know that she, you know, she understands that they had those doubts, but they're, she's not going to solve it. Uh, she's not going to answer if somebody's had long held doubts. She's not going to answer that in, um, you know, a couple sentences in a debate. But what she wants people to know, and this is like what I believe about my, her and my core, is you can count on her. It's, so regardless of everything that you've read, everything that, you know, um, and you can count on her. She's going to be there for you. There's no one that's going to work harder. And I think even people who don't support her uh, but have worked with her would admit that. Does she get nervous? <sighs> she brings it, right? Yeah, she's like always great on game day. Um, and uh, this has been a tricky debate to think through how it might um, how it's likely um, to go. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a huge amount, of, you know, huge amount of stake, but I feel pretty good about it, where oh. she is. Yeah, you've been in this process before. Have you ever seen an event in terms of a debate where the stakes were as high as this one? No. And this is, I mean, it is, <laughs> it, this, this election cycle is like a, a Batman movie <laughs> version of a campaign both candidates are from Gotham. You have the weight of the world hangs in the balance. You have overly stylized villains like Julian Assange and Vladimir Putin coming in and out. You have people who are on your side and people who are sometimes aren't on your side, like Catwoman. Uh, <laughs> we even have a new You've friend really in Mark Cuban who, like, you know, Where's Batman T-shirts? But who, you, who you're sitting it, in front of the who who is who's coming today? He's a very effective advocate on behalf of Hillary Clinton, and he's a very uh, effective spokesperson about the dangers that Donald Trump poses. But uh, it did occur to me during the bus tour. This occurred to me during our bus tour after the convention. I was watching Julian Assange on a Sunday show, and I was just like, "This is so. What is he doing? What is he doing messing in our elections? And like, what is, what are the in, in, what are the Russians? I mean, this is. I think there's just so much that's happened in this cycle that we can't process. But it, it's 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 a huge, uh, you know, it should be a really big concern. I think you know the Russians are trying to, they're trying to undermine our democracy. This is, you know, I think that. Uh, do you think they're in cahoots? I mean, do you think they? Do you think there's any real coordination? Do you think that well, ought to be investigated? I, I certainly think it should be investigated, and I think it is being investigated. And there was Michael Isakoff had a piece yesterday about Carter Page, who's a foreign policy advisor of Trump's. Uh, and that he had met with someone from the Kremlin that, the, that um, you know, right. according to Michael's reporting, that U.S. intelligence uh, officials believe is behind the hack. People. Right. <laughs> like, this is, uh, uh, this is the Russian government interfering in our election, not just hacking, but putting, uh, releasing information, leaks that are timed to hurt us, evidence of messing with voting machines to impact the outcome. And... You know, whether it's to make Donald Trump win or whether it's to just, which is, I think, is really terrifying, to undermine Americans' belief in our democracy. They want us to believe that we can't trust our democracy. They want to undermine the most fundamental principle of our country. It is, it's terrifying. And I think it's so scary uh, that we can't even process it. But why that are, is the moment when okay. it occurred to me, like, 
that it's like it's like a Batman movie. I mean, that is you know it's it's but 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 it's reality. But that's how many different crazy storylines and villains and people who are involved. Why isn't it penetrating? The only enduring. I think it is starting to penetrate. I really do. I mean, I just hear it anecdotally. I hear it from you know you hear people making jokes about Trump and Putin. You hear people saying, "Wow, this is really crazy." Or you know what happens to me so much is somebody sends me an article and says, "Oh my God!" Like a friend of mine, have you seen this? Like. Yes, yes, right. we've seen this. But uh, that, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Capricia Marshall, who uh, worked for Hillary for a long time, sure. she's um, Croatian, and she's in Cleveland right now knocking on doors. And she told me, boy, this Russia stuff is really, people are really worried. Uh, it's really breaking through. Obviously, that's like a big Eastern European um, enclave in the neighborhood, in like Parma in particular neighborhoods in, in Cleveland. But I think it is starting to, I think it definitely is, it is, it is sinking in, but it is really, I mean, it's really scary. And that's why you, you think, I believe Hillary Clinton's going to win. I believe the United States is going to thrive. I think that we are going to come out of this uh, stronger. We needed to have this um, reckoning. But, you know, you know, and the, the, the alternative is really frightening about our, our country, but also what it means if like somebody like Putin is able to, you know, who, you know, obviously has got a hold on Trump, uh, you know what that would mean for our our democracy. So you think you think Putin, if Trump were elected, Putin would have a real would, influence over the domestic affairs. Of the United I, well, I States. think that he would. Yeah, I think that this is Mike Morrell, who has a lot more credibility on this than myself. Former, former deputy, former, acting, former director, acting director of the CIA, yeah. said that um, he has become a witting or unwitting. Uh, you know, he's been a, he's become a recruit basically of the of the Russian Federation, an unwitting agent of the Russian Federation. So I think that. And Trump, we're sure about the unwitting part. No, um, but and I think that's you know something that needs to obviously be looked at. And there's you know there's um, uh, there was some good reporting in the Times um, on Thursday, I guess, about the a lot of financial connections that we didn't know about with with Russia and them propping his a lot of Russian money propping the Trumps up um, but you know this is what Putin does he you know I think that like a theory is he sought to cultivate Russians did Trump as a prominent American with a big financial interest not because they thought he'd run for president but this has been going on for years just but to kind of see just to they see they the do clouds. that right and um and then it's really, you know, I don't think that, you know, it's evolved into this person who's, you know, like he said, you know, he's has more respect for Putin than our president. Uh, and he's not the only Republican who said that. Um, the one last question. Um, this uh, you guys, uh, you didn't go dark in August, but you spent August uh, raising a lot of money. Had to. A lot. Uh, Trump pivoted during that period of time. Uh, ditched Manafort, got uh, Kellyanne Conway, a much more conventional mm -hmm. person, and seems to actually be listening to yeah, Kellyanne Conway. I would Conway. say they stabilized. Right, they stabilized. Do, did you, do you feel... Not make progress, stabilized. St stabilized. <laughs> do you feel like you took the boot off the neck? No, no, we don't. I mean, and we had... It, here's our reality. We had to raise. Um, we had to raise a lot of money. We needed to do that in August, so you could spend it in September and October. And I knew that everyone would say, "Oh my gosh, she's you know she's coasting, or she thinks she's got this in the bag." And 
Um, you know, there are, there's, you know, we have Senator Kane on our ticket now. He's extraordinarily effective. Um, and that he can, you know, there's a lot that he can do if, if, if she's not doing a lot of public events. But there's no ultimate replacement for the candidate themselves. And I knew that that was going to cost us something. And that's just a fact of our life. But what really mattered. But I do feel that we have, um, and we continue to do this, obviously, you certainly see that through our paid media, um, made America understand what he represents and, and, and defined him in the way that he should be. And uh, we will never take our, uh, you know, we will never ease up on that uh, gas pedal. Uh, and it, and what we came back and had a, um, you know, you know what ultimately matters is after Labor Day. But she raised $143 million, which is <laughs> what we really needed to do. I-, I lied. One last question. The, um, how is she feeling? How's the pneumonia? Is she going to, is she going to be able to, you know, make it through this uh, debate uh, feeling... Strong. It's good. She, um, when did we go? Where did we go? On Thursday. We traveled on Thursday. And that was the first time I had seen her in a, uh, a few days. And she had, you know, been able to get a good bit of rest. And I think, like, I got really sick recently, too. And like a lot of us, you don't realize until afterwards. After, you after you've gotten a lot of rest, you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I really did not feel good. And she feels great now. She... On Thursday, she got on the plane. She's like, I feel great. I'm really excited for the debate. And um, so, uh, yeah, she's good. She's going to check. Okay. Well, uh, Jen Palmieri, thanks for taking the time. I know you're a busy lady these days. So, so. It's been fun. It's been black. Thanks.